Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. In this episode, we will look at the changing landscape of energy. In the first segment, we'll talk about Ukraine and the Black Sea. In the second segment, Turkey and the Mediterranean Sea. In the third segment, Africa. And in the fourth segment, the Gulf. My guest to talk about all of this with me will be Julian Popov. Julian is a fellow of the European Climate Foundation, chairman of the Building Performance Institute Europe, and former Minister of Environment of Bulgaria. He was the Goodwill Bulgarian Ambassador for Energy and Climate Policy and Energy Security Advisor to the President of Bulgaria. Julian is a member of the European Council on Foreign Relations, the Advisory Board of Climate KIC, and the boards of several other energy and climate-related organizations. He's the founding vice-chancellor and current board member of the New Bulgarian University and co-founder of the Tunisian School of Politics. Julian was voted as one of the 40 most influential voices on European energy policies and also as one of the 40 most influential voices in the European energy efficiency policies by Euractiva. His articles on European and energy policy have been published in the Financial Times, Project Syndicate, NS Energy Monitor, The Independent, Al Jazeera, Huffington Post, Euractive, and others. He is the author of two books and co-author of books European Supergrid and Energy and Climate Diplomacy. I hope you'll enjoy this episode and thank you for tuning in to Mediterranean Sustainability Partners in 56 countries and five continents. Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm so pleased to have on my podcast today, Julian Popov. Julian, good morning or good afternoon. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Very good to, to be here with you. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, so as you know, probably the Mediterranean Sustainability Partners podcast is heard in 56 countries and Bulgaria is 35th. The UK is fifth. So. Just a little ranking information for our listeners, and we hope that they'll join in your in this podcast with you. Um, I have, as agreed, dear Julian, uh, three or four segments. We'll see what we can do today. Uh, as you know, I'm very ambitious. In the first segment, I'd like to talk to you about the overall subject, rather, is the changing landscape of energy security. In segment one, I'd like to talk about Ukraine and the Black Sea. In segment two, Turkey and the Mediterranean Sea. In segment three, Africa, which is a huge topic. We'll see what we can do with that. And then in segment four, finally, if we get to it, uh, is the Gulf. So uh, let's start maybe with the, uh, as you know, Ukraine is a very hot topic these days. And you and I met in a Black Sea uh, country, which was uh, Bulgaria in Sofia, um, was it 2015, I believe, right? Yes, yes, around that. <laughs> so, uh, let's talk about Ukraine and, of course, the war and what this war has brought out, amongst other things, uh, is, of course, energy, energy security, energy dependency. Could you talk to us a little bit about the stakes here for perhaps European countries and, of course, uh, Eastern European countries that are very dependent, right? Um, yes, uh, the dependency is different. The, uh, obviously, the invasion of Ukraine brought uh, many uh, issues. Uh, energy is one of the, the top uh, uh, external issues when we uh, sort of, uh, of course, the humanitarian disaster in Ukraine and, and all that is... Uh, um, and the fate of all Ukrainians in, is in our heart. But when we talk about energy, 
it showed the dependency of the individual countries and the complexity of this dependency because we we tend to say uh, oh, Eastern Europe or Europe is dependent on Russian energy full stop but when there is a crisis like the crisis now we um, start seeing the infrastructure dependency the trading dependency but also the political dependency and the willingness of different governments to um, to deal to react and to mobilize their resources, political resources, infrastructure resources, and, and so on. So we are looking now not just at uh, uh, cutting energy supplies or uh, a rapid decline of Russian energy supplies. We are looking at a, a very complex picture in which we see that countries that have been always branded as 100% dependent on Russia, like Bulgaria, for instance, um, finding it very easy to, to get off Russian uh, gas supplies. Uh, at the same time, big countries like Germany and Italy are finding it very difficult. Uh, so we, we are understanding quite a lot about uh, uh, how different countries manage their energy security risk over the years. Yeah, obviously dependency or interdependency and dependency is not necessarily equal. And as you rightly point out, and I remember when, when we met in 2015, there was this launch of the uh, European Energy Union. Uh, can you can you talk to me a little bit about that? Um, because yes, I mean, the, gonna... the, the European Energy Union is an interesting uh, story. It happened after the annexation of uh, Crimea. Initially, yes. it was the, uh, the an idea that came from Poland, uh, and then uh, Poland and the Polish Prime Minister proposed that as a um, format for uh, the relationship with uh, uh, Russian energy. Uh, but then that initial idea was transformed and uh, linked and aligned with the climate goals of the European Union. So we have a, uh, we, the energy union is actually a mixture between the, the climate goals, the other European energy policies and the trigger of the annexation of Crimea that uh, uh, showed that uh, Europe has to look much, much more seriously at um, uh, energy dependency on Russia. So what happened after that, during the, the previous mandate of the European Commission, quite a lot of things have been done, uh, but uh, not radical things. So, for instance, some interconnectors were were built, uh, some energy efficiency policies, renewable energy policies were um, accelerated, some electricity interconnectors, the internal energy market, and, and various other mechanisms. Uh, all that helps, uh, but uh, it was not uh, enough for um, facing the, the the challenge of the full invasion invasion of uh, of Ukraine in in February this year. Interestingly enough, and you mentioned it, um, COP twenty one took place, and I remember participating in events and writing articles and things for the COP twenty one in two thousand fifteen. So uh, you're saying now that the energy union and the climate issues were, and maybe the Paris Accord was it meant to go together? And this is what maybe what we're seeing coming out of this period and now going into Repower Europe and, and other initiatives, would you say? Yes, I mean, th this is a very interesting chain of events and uh, we will not understand very clearly the picture of uh, uh, either of energy security or of climate policies if we mm -hmm. don't see them together. Yeah. So if we think about that uh, and if we look at also the data and trends of using energy, we will see that there is a very um, radical change of trends uh, after the Arab oil embargoes. Yes, uh, the 73, right? Specifically the 73 embargo. Uh, mm -hmm. Then uh, two things happened in Europe very important that uh, we, we have to keep in mind. One is the 
start of the uh, wind energy, which started basically in Denmark. Uh, At the very beginning, that was uh, more like sort of pilot academic projects that uh, very few people probably believe that they can turn into a serious industry. And now we see that it's a massive industry and remarkable engineering. And especially when we look at the offshore wind, I mean, it's amazing what what, what path uh, it, it went, this industry. And the other thing, of course, is the wave of energy efficiency policies. We, we very often ignore energy efficiency right. because it's not dramatic enough. I mean, there is no massive engineering, there are no pipelines or, or yeah. something. But um, energy efficiency um, regulations and, and policies, both on European and on national level, uh, had a major impact. And we can see how from until the end of the 70s, the European Union and especially North European countries, Germany, for example, uh, were on a very steep path of increasing uh, energy consumption. And suddenly this path was uh, broken and the energy consumption started going down and up. And basically the trend is flat with uh, the long term trend with gradual decline. At the same time, uh, the economies grew and continued to to grow and uh, Europe to to prosper economically and industrially. Uh, Very often we hear stories that, oh, oh, that is because uh, all industries were um, outsourced to to China and that's why we don't have industries. Uh, That's simply not true. I mean, the data doesn't suggest it because if we compare production uh, emissions with consumption emissions. Uh, yes, there is a bit of difference, but that difference stays flat over the last 50 years, probably. So that's not the reason. If the policies that were triggered by the uh, embargo and by the panic around this embargo. And, uh, and then the energy union was again triggered by a political uh, risk. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and also some other uh, policies before that were triggered by the interruptions of uh, Russian gas supplies in 2009, in the in the early 2009. So uh, this uh, supply um, stresses uh, had a major impact on kind of recalibrating the the energy use of, uh, of, of Europe. And then, of course, the, the climate policy started to um, expand and to become deeper and deeper. And so climate policies are a major factor in shaping our energy, uh, energy mix and uh, energy use. Uh, and the third factor is uh, just the development of technologies. So we just- I was gonna say technology, what role of technology? That was my next question. (laughs) What was the role of technology, yeah. Exactly, the technologies were very, uh, I mean, uh, when we were uh, discussing uh, uh, reducing emissions in Copenhagen in COP15, that was 2009, I think. And uh, then, uh, I mean, the, the, the picture was very clear and in a way scary then because uh, renewable energy was very expensive. So yes. there was a clear trade-off. We, we will either allow a serious increase of emissions uh, or uh, control this increase of, of carbon emissions and greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, but we have to sacrifice our uh, a bit of our economy, of our economic growth. Uh, that is not the case anymore. I was going to say it didn't happen, did it? Exactly. Well, I mean, in certain cases, uh, yes, there are public investments. There are countries paid quite a lot for uh, early uh, expansion of renewable energy. Uh, but like with any technology, you pay a lot at the beginning and then if it's successful 
it, it decreased. So all these complexities are kind of highlighted and, and made quite visible uh, by the Ukrainian crisis. And of course, there are the political uh, issues, how different countries react. And then we can see where there is some kind of love affair with Russia or hate uh, affair with Russia. Uh, these are kind of um, the other factors. So how has, and you mentioned earlier, a political shock, do you think, first of all, one, do you think Ukraine and this war in Ukraine, invasion of Russia into Ukraine was a political shock, a wake-up call? And secondly, has it divided or united Europe on really being serious about uh, energy policy, energy independence or less dependency? Or uh, let's look at that issue. Um, what, what do you think? Well, I think uh, it united Europe, that's definitely the case. Uh, but of course, this unification is uh, uh, went through the usual stages. The first one was very boisterous, enthusiastic. We're getting right. off uh, Rus Russian energy and then some industries were saying, OK, but we can't do it immediately. Some politicians uh, weren't very happy with that. But uh, overall, we are seeing a clear target of getting off Russian energy. And, uh, and already the import in volumes, at least, uh, of Russian gas has declined significantly for Europe. Um, at the moment, that's compensated by the high energy prices. But if the trend continues, um, I would expect that by the end of 2022, the the, the, the import of Russian gas will probably decline by 70 or 80 percent. Wow. Well, so this is overall EU then? Overall EU, yes. Okay. Uh, overall okay. Europe is depends what we include in Europe. If we include sure. Turkey, that's mm -hmm. um, different. But mm -hmm. uh, uh, yes, it's... Um, uh, we, we are going in that direction and it's not just gas it's oil of course and right and coal coal was the easiest yeah uh, of course but, uh, oil and and gas i i guess we will have a rapid significant decline this year and in the next probably two years uh, there will be complete uh, break with uh, russian supplies Wow. Okay. All right. Um, just to conclude, maybe this segment. What what are, what are your perspective then in terms of the mix? So we're getting off of coal. Is there another supplier that Europe is talking to? I heard some things about U.S. was talking to Venezuela. Uh, U.S. was also talking to Iran. Uh, we know where the oil is, Saudi Arabia, etc. What is there another supplier that can replace this Russian? Because we're not going to be using Russian oil and gas or coal in in the in Europe or the EU. Uh, what, what is your take on that? Well, I mean, that's a very interesting question, which again doesn't have a very simple answer because we're not talking about one supplier. I mean, exactly. in, in the period of huge enthusiasm, some people were saying, oh, we'll replace Russian gas with American LNG. It doesn't work like that. No. Um, it is very important also to look at the uh, global balance of supply and demand of, of uh, energy. Uh, if Europe uh, cuts completely its supplies from uh, Russia, uh, it, it is not just uh, a divorce, um, happy, clean divorce or unhappy, but uh, it, it's a disruption of the global energy supply uh, chain. Yes. And um, and that disruption is very difficult to predict how exactly it will work. But I think one thing that is very important is that uh, the uh, replacement of uh, Russian uh, energy sources uh, should be uh, should also include a very very significant part of um, taking fossil fuels out of the system. Uh, because um, if even from purely, you know, it's not just a climate issue, but also economic issue. Uh, if Europe replaces 100% of the Russian supplies with 100% of, I don't know, some other from mm -hmm. America, Qatar, Australia, I mean, mm -hmm. elsewhere, um, 
that would just um, maintain very high prices because it will continue to put uh, pressure on the supply uh, mainly through uh, supplier route supply uh, chains and this pressure will continue to push the prices up uh, so it is very important from cost from price point of view to take out oil and and gas as much as we can from the system and we're in a relatively good position because uh, before covid the green deal was agreed i mean the green deal and the following uh, fit for 55 and then the following uh, repower europe uh, th these are european policies that uh, include a, a huge menu of already developed policies uh, for uh, reducing fossil fuel use. Uh, so the, the last wave of policies just had to strengthen existing policies rather than inventing everything mm. from scratch. And uh, I think that will help. And I, I would expect that in the next two, three years, the gas consumption of Europe will decline by 100 billion cubic meters, oil consumption wow. also will decline. Uh, I mean, the other day, the European Parliament supported the phasing out of, of sale of new um, uh, cars with internal combustion engine cars by 2035. Uh, that will push the electric cars, will reduce oil consumption and so on. So we're we're looking yeah. at a very complex process, which is going into one direction, uh, shrinking in Europe, at least, of the use of fossil fuels. Interesting, because I just, you know, I read the Figaro every day and there was a sondage, you know, a, a poll and French people said it's a good thing to get rid of the, the thermal combustion engines, the internal combustion engines. And it was, you know, negative. People didn't like the idea of getting rid of their cars. And one last point, if I may, uh, just talk about the nuclear aspect, just to round off the segment. Um, can you can you tell us what if can nuclear fill in some of these gaps that uh, maybe the I mean, you know, the... There, there was a there was a hope and expectation that nuclear will fill some gap. The, the, the obvious expectation was that uh, Germany will reverse some of its right. um, phasing out policies. Germany said no, oh. uh, with a mixture of, of uh, public. Uh, positions but also technical argument mm. saying that once you start phasing them uh, out you can't reverse the process so to what extent that's the case is uh, everybody can guess but uh, mm. uh, so a new nuclear is something that takes ages to build so I don't expect the nuclear it's, true, it's a long yeah long but process one, one interesting thing with nuclear and Ukraine is that I think Ukraine will lead to a significant uh, increase of cost of nuclear because nuclear power stations were um, frontally attacked uh, yes. in, in Ukraine. And I imagine that uh, in the near future, we will see um, safety regulations that will require um, nuclear power stations to sustain the, the most aggressive, massive uh, weapons, which uh, inevitably will lead to increase of the cost of nuclear. Sure. All right. Well, let's stop there for the Black Ukraine and Black Sea portion. We'll move on to the next segment. Thank you so much, Julian. Thank you. with Julian Popov. Julian, hello again. Hello again. <laughs> so we're back in the second segment now. We're going to talk about Turkey and the Mediterranean Sea, of course, all in the framework of the changing landscape of energy security. Um, you know, let's start where, where we should. I mean, you know, this whole crisis with Ukraine, obviously, and of course, before the crisis in Ukraine and the war in Ukraine, we have to call it a war, um, Turkey was drilling in the southern uh, coast and then, of course, on the Black Sea side. 
Um, what can you tell us about Turkey's position in, in this energy, first of all, in this energy landscape, vis-a-vis uh, -vis maybe Ukraine and being a Black Sea country, and then secondly, for its own energy and all these oil and gas, sorry, gas fields being developed in the Eastern Mediterranean? I mean, the, uh, one of the things that became uh, apparent in, uh, uh, as a result of the war in Ukraine is the uh, very interesting and very important position of Turkey. Yes. Uh, everybody's eyes is focused on, the, on one side, on the gas discoveries, and on the other side, on the gas uh, tensions and conflicts. I mean, the gas discoveries are in the Black Sea and the tensions are in the Eastern Mediterranean around Cyprus and all that. Mm -hmm. And uh, if we, I haven't done that, but if we run some kind of a counting of articles and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and panics uh, online, I mean, I guess 95% will go into uh, gas deposits in Eastern Mediterranean and uh, Turkey and uh, Cyprus and Greece and, and, and so on and so on and lots yep. of uh, heated um, exchanges and debates. Yes. So, um, personally, I think this is the least important part of the picture. Uh, because uh, there are several others that are very interesting. Okay. Uh, obviously, the discoveries in Black Sea, uh, we have to see, we have to see what will happen with them. Uh, we have to see the first gas flowing out of there, what yeah. will happen and how will change the picture. Uh, but there is another very interesting thing with Turkey is that Turkey had a consistent policy in the last 10 years of reducing its dependency, uh, gas dependency on Russia. The result right. of that was not cutting links with Russia, but increasing infrastructure elsewhere. Yes. As a result of that, now Turkey has probably two or three times um, more import gas import capacity than its own use. And large part of that is uh, our LNG um, terminals. So in this crisis with uh, Ukrainian energy and routes and cutting off uh, Russian supplies, uh, Turkey suddenly uh, can offer and is offering uh, gradually, not, not very loudly, but gradually, yeah. <laughs> it's offering its LNG import capacity for Europe. And that turns Turkey into a sort of quite interesting uh, country. So the, the Black Sea deposits and the LNG import capacities, for me, are, first they're more real and uh, are much, much more important than the, uh, the fighting and the arguing over the East Mediterranean. The other thing that is very interesting in Turkey is um, the growth of renewable energy. I mean, Turkey has fantastic wind and solar yes. potential, but also development. And uh, Turkey, more than 50% of the um, electricity of Turkey is renewable. Um, and a large part of it is hydro, but the significant hydro capacity of Turkey gives a very good opportunity for Turkey to uh, develop intermittent capacity because hydro capacity is a, a dispatchable energy and it fits very well with the variability of uh, wind and solar. So uh, I would say that the most interesting side part of the Turkish energy picture is uh, it's renewable generation and, and low carbon generation. They're adding a little bit of nuclear. Don't know how wise that is. We'll see uh, the price in the future. But uh, it is zero carbon uh, electricity. And uh, with all this zero carbon electricity, Turkey will become uh, uh, an interesting uh, partner of the European Union. Uh, in its decarbonization goals. You talked to us a little bit about, uh, as I haven't mentioned Azerbaijan yet, because I met uh, some uh, people, some uh, you know representatives of the Azerbaijan government, uh, I believe it was 2012 at the European Parliament. 
And they were trying to position themselves as the second route after Russia to Europe for uh, energy. Would you say that Azerbaijan is part of this Turkish picture at all or not? Uh, it is to, to, to an extent because um, the, the, the Trans-Anadolian pipeline, TANAP, uh, yeah. is running from Azerbaijan through Turkey, then it turns into the Trans-Adriatic pipeline. So that, yeah. But this is a pipeline that, uh, yes, it has a significance for probably for Southeast Europe, a little bit for Italy, but it is not something that dramatically can change the uh, supplies uh, or compete with Russia. I mean, no, uh, you're not at all. No, it's yes, 10 billion cubic meters coming from Azerbaijan against 150, 60, or 70 coming yeah. from Russia. Yeah, so sure. obviously, it's not a match. But there is something else interesting Azerbaijan. in Azerbaijan. Azerbaijan is also very interested in developing its uh, renewable energy, uh, including the, the very strong wind potential in, uh, in the Caspian Sea. And there is a a serious um, statement from the Azerbaijani government that they want to develop that uh, uh, offshore wind and then throw a cable across the Black Sea and supply <laughs> Europe with green electricity. And well, that sounds a little bit fantasies kind of story is one of these fantasies that can um, come true one day. So how about, of course, Turkey as a NATO ally? Uh, in all of this, you know, and as a broker, as we've seen uh, between Russia uh, and Ukraine and the summits, different summits uh, or, you know, brokering, you know, meetings that have taken place in Antalya and, um, and Ankara, sorry, at the Antalya Diplomatic Forum, for example. Um, and how do you see Turkey uh, in its role, uh, in, first of all, in this, in this war, in this conflict? And secondly, um, as this energy provider, and maybe if I can get a third part in there, is, is its relationship with Russia? I mean, starting from the relationship with Russia, um, uh, Turkey has um, uh, complicated relationships, as, <laughs> as they, they say when they ask you about your kind of marriage status, and you say it's complicated. So it's complicated, yeah. it's very complicated. Historically, it's complicated. Uh, recent history is complicated. Economically, it's complicated. I mean, let's not forget that uh, Turkey even shot one of the Russian planes in the Syrian yeah. uh, territory, and that uh, created a massive tension between the countries. Hmm. Uh, let's also not forget that the war between um, Armenia and Azerbaijan, a recent war, yeah. Uh, was uh, um, half a war between Azerbaijan and, and Armenia, or three quarters, but the rest was a war between Turkey and Russia, and, Tur and Turkey won that war. So it's uh, so Turkey is a growing military power, not just because it has big army, but it, it also uh, started developing its um, uh, own uh, high. Uh, level uh, military uh, equipment and ammunition and uh, the famous Bayraktar drones and so on. Yes. But at the same time, it uh, continues its uh, trade uh, kind of marriage with with Russia, and uh, it's keeping uh, dangerous, but so far successful to from Turkish point of view balance. Uh, it banned uh, military planes from its airspace, but allowed civilian planes. Uh, it banned um, military ships to go through the Bosphorus, which is a great help for Ukraine. Um, it supplies uh, military equipment through Ukraine, but at the same time position itself as a, uh, as a mediator between Ukraine and Russia. So. Uh, it's an interesting place, uh, space to watch, and the only thing I hope is that uh, this mediation uh, role will uh, will somehow contribute to um, solving the the, the the war. We hope so. Yes. Uh, if I could just finish up this segment, then maybe on 
Turkey and Greece and uh, maybe the energy equation uh, and being both NATO members, you remember there was a squabble, I think it was a couple summers ago. Uh, I, I wondered if we could finish all that and what it looks like maybe going forward. Yeah, I mean, of course, there are squabbles and there will be always because of Cyprus and because of history and because of all sorts of other things. At the same time, there is a trade going on between Greece and Turkey, including energy trade, uh, both in gas and electricity. And I think there is a huge, huge opportunity for a non-political energy alliance between Turkey, Greece, Bulgaria, um, maybe Romania and some other um, South, uh, Southeast European countries, because we need Turkey and Turkey needs us in yes. order to expand our renewable energy, to ramp up the electrification of the system. Mm -hmm. It's very, very important that we work together and it's very important that process to be um, separated from the um, endless accession process of the um, of, of Turkey because there is one energy chapter there which is not open and very often if you talk about uh, energy um, relations between Turkey and uh, European Union and you receive the answer well we haven't opened the energy chapter so we have to forget about this energy chapter and build a new um, clean energy platform between EU and Turkey. That's very important. And Greece is playing a key role in that. That's wonderful. Well, that's, we'll end it on a positive note then, the segment. Thank you so much, Julian. Okay. with Julian Popov in segment three of the podcast. Hello again, Julian. Hello again. <laughs> Here we are. So to conclude this podcast, and thank you again for your time and your expertise, I really do appreciate it. Uh, we're talking, just so our listeners know, in this third segment about the changing landscape of energy security. And um, we've already discussed Ukraine and the Black Sea, Turkey and the Mediterranean. Now we're going to move to Africa. So it's a big piece. I don't know where you want to start on Africa, but um, I'll, I'll let you maybe give us some, maybe some sort of introduction or uh, what, what would you like to talk about in Africa and energy security? I mean, uh, there, there are several uh, dimensions of Africa. I mean, it's a big place, naturally. Right. Uh, but um, uh, one from, uh, from point of view of, climate and emission reductions, there are two territories, big territories in the world, that if they don't uh, control the emissions in line with uh, much below their economic growth, we can forget about the Paris Agreement. This is Africa and India. If they follow the same trajectory as, as China, for instance, uh, with their economic growth and, and growth of emissions, uh, that will be a disaster for the Paris goals. Um, the good news is that um, renewable energy is much cheaper, technologies are very advanced, uh, the focus on the transition is much more mature now, and there is a great opportunity for both India and Africa, but uh, let's look into Africa. Um, Africa is also very, very important from point of view of the new technologies, because when we talk about energy security, we tend to talk about oil and gas, and Perfect. that's it, and sometimes coal. Uh, but with the energy transition, this uh, landscape is changing very much and with the change of technology. So we are talking much more about uh, 
cyber security, for instance, much more about security of supplies, security of uh, um, critical materials or rare metals. Yes. Uh, so uh, also the security of uh, technologies and um, concentration of technologies and, and research and development. The picture of energy security is becoming very, very complex. And of course, when we talk about access to various um, critical materials, Africa is very important because of uh, uh, cobalt and uh, nickel and uh, um, copper and, and various um, sources. Uh, and at the same time is a clean uh, plate uh, in many, many areas because a large part of the population of Africa doesn't have access to electricity. And we have this big question, do we follow the usual path of development of energy, or we can actually leapfrog the whole right. uh, known energy evolution and jump from no electricity to decentralized, renewable, digitalized electricity uh, systems. And um, and I think that to a large extent that is very possible, and this is the the future of Africa. But also, it's a great opportunity to strengthen the overall security of Africa, because there there was a recent report by Irina, which made assessment which are the geographies where you can. Uh, get uh, clean hydrogen at the lowest price. We're just going to talk about that, yeah. <laughs> and Africa is the place. I mean, yeah. the leading place. So we're all talking about hydrogen and suddenly Africa is coming with an answer of, of cheap hydrogen. And the world needs cheap hydrogen and um, Africa can deliver. But obviously Africa can deliver that only with in combination with uh, advanced technologies that we can see in United States, in Germany, Denmark, in, uh, in, in advanced technological countries. So there is a very interesting political struggle here, mm. which uh, we will uh, watch in the coming years and we'll see how that will develop. Because at the same time, Africa has a lot of coal, a lot of oil, a lot of exactly. gas. Yeah. And there is a lot of interest in that. And there yeah. is, at the end of this year, one of the very interesting events that we have to watch is there is a, the um, Russia-Africa summit. And I imagine that the Russia-Africa summit, which is a now reoccurring event, uh, will be very ambitious exactly in these points, oil and gas and extracting industries. And that. also that will be linked with the expected uh, a dark side of uh, cooperation with Russia and uh, whether that will materialize and expand, uh, we, we have to see. The, the sad truth is that the EU-Africa relationships are not developing with the, the capacity that exists in this, uh, in this link. So it's a very uh, interesting place to watch. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Algeria, where I did a Green Economy Forum in, in March. And exactly the question that you talked to me about was hydrogen and green hydrogen. There's gray, black, gray, blue, green. I found there's different shades of, of hydrogen. And I, I would like to maybe to tell our listeners a little bit more about this hydrogen, how it can become green and how uh, this whole process, because apparently Algeria, you know, has gas and oil and huge ex sun exposition. Uh, and wind. Uh, so it's ideally situated to take in all of these technologies. But like you say, uh, they need new technologies to, to yeah. harness uh, these, this energy. Could you talk to us just a little bit, Julian, about the different types of hydrogen maybe for our listeners? Well, I mean, uh, Algeria is a, it's obviously a very good candidate, uh, but that can happen with closer relationships with uh, advanced technological countries, not with countries like Russia. So that's uh, something that uh, uh, is from purely economic and technological point of view is a clear interest of Algeria. Sure. So sure, if somebody sure. listens in Algeria, that's my kind of message. 
and uh, and definitely the new technologies, the, the big solar potential, both for hydrogen, but also the idea of uh, reviving the old desert tech kind of concept. Yes, I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> yes, I mean, the desert tech concept died because uh, solar energy for several reasons but solar energy became very cheap and then there was no much logic in building solar power plants in uh, Sahara and putting cables to Germany mm. but while we're increasing our ambition um, and while we're adding also hydrogen to the to the equation uh, the uh, renewable potential of North Africa becomes um, we we can re- rediscover this potential, right? so, and this time not uh, just with kind of grand concepts, but in a very very practical uh, way. And there is a project now that is uh, being uh, is advancing uh, for a um, uh, link between. Uh, high power, uh, uh, high voltage link between Morocco and UK, for instance, which is, I think, 3,600 kilometers. I mean, this is huge. Um, But uh, similar thing could be done with Algeria, with, uh, there are several, uh, two actually, uh, ideas for links between Egypt and Europe. One of them uh, is uh, actually not Egypt, but uh, one is Egypt, the other is Israel. The one that comes from Israel, Cyprus, uh, Greece is also part of the so-called projects of common interest of the European Commission. Mm-hmm. So th- these are all projects that have been sort of waiting and waiting there in the mm. uh, on the shelves, uh, but suddenly they might materialize because they. The technology matured and their time is coming. So uh, it's a great opportunity also from, for Algeria. Um, and uh, it might miss it because it, it has, there is competition for these things. Sure. Can I t- just talk to you about, excuse me, another aspect of hydrogen? I heard that it was very difficult to transport, but ammonia could be transported. Can you? you know enlighten us on that because yes i mean that, that that's the the idea that ammonia could be uh, transported and could be uh, used also directly at the moment there are a lot of um, work on uh, liquefaction of, of hydrogen this is this is very difficult because the, the temperature is much lower than liquefying gas uh, but uh, ammonia is uh, seems to be a credible. I mean, of course, it comes with its problems. Uh, uh, it's a toxic material, and so on and so on. But uh, I don't think there are problems that engineers can solve. Right. Uh, so uh, ammonia seems to be the, the the leading candidate now for transporting uh, hydrogen. I personally don't see hydrogen being transported into existing or repurposed gas pipelines. I don't think that will happen, or it might happen, but in much, much kind of limited uh, uh, scale. Uh, And this whole concept of building gas infrastructure that is hydrogen ready, is um, simply the gas industry is trying to kind of uh, get through somehow with uh, with its with its things, and uh, but but it's be- it's becoming uh, increasingly obvious that uh, hydrogen will be used in a very different way than natural gas. It will go in different directions. It will the sources will be different. The destinations will be different and. Obviously, the infrastructure will be different. So, the gas pipelines will not be used, or most of them will not be used for hydrogen. Uh, but uh, new fields, like I don't know, in huge fields, solar fields in in North Africa, in Sahara Desert, uh, could be developed into uh, massive hydrogen sources and ammonia sources. So, let's talk about maybe just to wrap up the segment. Um, is how 
So great potential, obviously, that we know and you and I know of Africa. Um, uh, they're looking to export north and or south with this potential, would you say? Well, um, the, the export destinations are several. One is north, yes, for the industries in Europe that want to decarbonize. So that's right, one destination right. for hydrogen in principle. Right. Uh, the other destination is a moving destination because that's the shipping. So I don't know where exactly is the shipping. I mean, ships move around. So it's... Right, uh, right, right. Um, right. But obviously, um, that, that's also an opportunity for um, if hydrogen or ammonia become uh, a major way of decarbonizing shipping, uh, then that uh, will be uh, the second uh, destination. And the third destination, in my view, is, is one of the most interesting ones, uh, is when the hydrogen doesn't move. The hydrogen stays where it is produced or very close to the place where it's produced because if if you produce green hydrogen and green hydrogen you produce with renewable energy with solar panels and wind and maybe nuclear but nuclear is uh, i think it will be solar main solar and wind Um, but if you can provide huge amounts of renewable energy plus hydrogen production, you're becoming a very good, very attractive investment destination for companies that want to build industrial facilities for their decarbonized... um, Yeah, like there's sites around where the uh, energy is, so that's going to attract like businesses. Oh, like like an industrial park. Yes, exactly. And, And this could be the industrial... Um, low carbon and zero carbon industrial parks that need exactly that. I mean, they need they need renewable energy, they need hydrogen, green hydrogen, right. and they need environment which supports decarbonization. And and basically, uh, most international companies, big international companies and growing number are looking for uh, environment that will help them to move to net zero. So if Volkswagen or Google or Amazon or whatever wants to build something somewhere, they will look increasingly to places where there is a lot of renewable energy, a lot of hydrogen, hydrogen specifically when it comes to producing of steel and uh, chemical industries uh, and existing use of hydrogen because at the moment there is 90 million uh, tons of global hydrogen market anyway. So the normal thing is to decarbonize first the existing hydrogen then to move to other places. But, but this kind of uh, developing and producing hydrogen and keeping it where it is produced, at least part of it, is a very interesting uh, opportunity for countries to attract investments. That's an, that's an excellent way to, to, to finish up this segment. Thank you so much. I learned even more than I knew about hydrogen. Thank you, Julian, for your time again. Today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much.